The Conspiracy Podcast contains adult themes, language, violence, and sexual situations. Basically, all the good stuff. Thanks for listening. Davidians is an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They broke off from the church and moved out here from Los Angeles back in 1935. But despite the longevity of the cult in and around the Waco area, very few Waco residents that we spoke with had ever even heard of this cult before today. Unfortunately, this was the end of their world for the four federal agents, and we should point out there was another victim. A two-year-old cult member was also shot and killed in the gunfire. One other point, uh, the local newspaper and an Australian detective hired by former cult members has been investigating this group back since 1990. We're told that information was turned over to local authorities at that time, but they were told that there was not enough information to pursue any investigation at the time. We'll continue monitoring the story as it develops. Listeners and welcome back to Conspiracy Podcast. I am your guest host, Jace Wingate, and these are your permanent hosts. I am Renee, one of your options for permanent host. And it's me. I'm Katie. <laughs> I love it's me. And it's me. Everyone it's me. knows. I'm I'm channeling my inner uh, Lizzie McGuire or you know, one of the mid-2000 tv shows it's yeah. me again the mid-2000s are, are back i guess we're old enough that we're cycling back through our adolescence <sighs> yeah we're officially vintage yes all of us love us, it us late 80s. born in the late, late 1900s has come again <laughs> yeah she's making it through life god the late 1900s sounds so much older than the 1990s like the late 1900s how i don't like i don't know it doesn't make sense to me because if you were to say like oh it happened in the late 1800s i'd be like oh 1880 if you say late 1900s i'm like 1950 what (laughs) when they're gonna be like the invention of wi-fi the invention of the internet came during the late 1900s some of those things that these kids like will like post like the goddamn girl who was like i found this skirt and look it's got shorts underneath of it like honey it's it's giving me a lot of insight because i have a foster brother who's 11 years older than me and it's giving me a lot of insight into how his friends acted when i was a teenager it's like oh yeah okay yeah i know i get it now it's cool again to wear a little pastel colored baby doll shirt that says fun size on it those are back in style if they watch josie and the pussycats with rachel lee cook and rosario dawson and Rosario what the Dawson. hell is the other girl's name? Tara Reed. Um, that is one of my favorite what? movies. Okay, Josie and the Pussycat. Ah, oh, so good. It is one of the smartest movies Product from placement. the early 2000s, oh, and it's so good. It does not get enough credit for how smart it is, and I feel bad. It got so much shit for having so much product placement and then you you look like i was like a teenage i think i was like 16 when it came out so i didn't care too much but i think i watched it again in my early 20s and i was like oh that's the point 
that's the point. The whole movie is about subliminal message yes. and how ridiculous product placement is. But everybody just wanted to shit on Tara Reid and teenage girls. Let me tell you, I had the VHS tape of Josie and the Pussycats when it came out. And it was not that it was not the normal like here's the box. This is the box of the v, of the Josie and the Pussycat VHS tape. It was the blockbuster VHS mm-hmm. tape. So it had no box except for the thin little blockbuster box that was cut out in the front to show that it was Josie and the Pussycats. So you're telling me you stole this from Blockbuster? No, my it, mom bought never it. Returned it. No, and left town. It was one of the movies that Blockbuster was selling, but it wasn't in its the... typical box. Oh, okay. And it literally says Blockbuster yeah, on the VHS tape. Some that is petty larceny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Katie's shoplifting at 15. She's like, this is what I need more than anything else. Listen, I've stolen See, so I many Redbox movies. Listen, I never stole from They're still charging your cards. <laughs> they were. I paid once with like my Apple Pay on my phone. And I didn't, I, it was only, I only had like $2 in Apple Pay. So I used my Apple Pay and I was like, I'll just return the movie tomorrow. Well, I didn't return it for like, I don't know if I returned it, honestly. And so, <laughs> so my Apple Pay was charged $16, but it didn't have $16 in it. So it kept bouncing back. And then finally I got paid like money on my Apple Pay and it cleared up the debt. It's like, cause I kept trying to take the money out and then it couldn't come out. Redbox says we're getting this money from you. They got it like two months later. They fucking repoed your Apple Pay. Said we're back. They're, they're like, just try again. Just keep. They're trying. all asleep. Switch is gonna lose money at they're some at point. They're asleep at their computers, and then some alarm bells start going off, and they're like, "Fuck yeah!" <laughs> you get a you get a brick through your window that says, "Pay your debt." We find they're like, "Ding ding ding!" We finally got money from that bitch who got Trolls Two World Tour and never returned it. You're in a blacklist. They're like, never rented this girl again. I try to go get a new DVD. I'm just going to shoot my car. Public enemy number one for Redbox. My picture pops up on the screen. <laughs> the police show up. They take you away. <laughs> See here. Okay. Here's what we do. We're going to start a gift card scam. And we're going to get people to buy us gift cards. And then we're going to use the gift cards to buy red box ones but we're gonna get him to buy his like small gift card amounts like five dollars and then we're gonna use the five dollar gift cards to rent red box movies and then we're never going to return them and then we're gonna set up our own red box in a brick and mortar and create a new version of blockbuster called block box. we're gonna have to figure out a <laughs> block box. we're red buster yes <laughs> Okay, Blockbox I'm okay with. Redbuster <laughs> sounds like somebody who only has sex with women on their period. Yeah. Redbuster sounds like the biggest pile driver, like dildo. I'm Redbuster. Like, mm. <laughs> like you can only buy it at Bad Dragon. It's re- it's got like that blood inside like, of it. It's like clear on the outside, and there's blood oh running. <sighs> it's like what are the a jackhammer? It has like jackhammer hands. <laughs> well i think instead of doing the conspiracy slash cult slash murder slash ghost podcast we should just transition to sex podcast all right and i'm your host 
<laughs> Conspirapenis. We are going to solely talk about the Wonderland murders. Oh, that's wait, it. yeah, that's right. I was, there was a question I wanted to ask you guys. Because it's something that I've been wondering myself. What would you do if you didn't have to work? Like, if you just had all the money you needed, all the resources you needed, what would you do? If you got that 40 to 60 hours of your week back. I would kind of do like, I would just kind of do the things that bring me joy, which are like, I love reading. I love watching like really good movies and shows, um, playing video games. Like those would be like private moments for me. And then I would use the other time, like doing what else I love doing, which is spending time with people I love and talking to them and sharing the things that I do in my private time and connecting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like my that. turn <laughs> yes <laughs> yes we're, we're all sharing it's a share circle i would probably just continue because i'm just at that point in my life especially with the bus to just travel and just basically experience the world with my entire family meaning my husband and my children because i think i would really enjoy that not have to worry about work not stress about it just be able to like experience new mm-hmm. things what about you I think I would create more things like I would do a lot more crocheting like there have been so many times where I've been working on something and I'll look them like uh, it's 1 30 I still have three and a half well yeah still have three and a half more hours of work I wish that I was working on you know the sweater I'm making for cat or the thing I'm making for tuna or something else it would be nice to have more openness to my day other than the like hour that I get to work out and shove food in my mouth and I think I would go hiking more I would definitely go outdoors more because you're just so limited in the time you have especially when you're working from like eight to four eight to five and especially this time of year where it's like if I want to take my dogs on a walk I either have to get up super early to do it when it's still mostly dark outside I either have to take them on my lunch break and then I'm rushed because it's, you know, a five to 10 minute drive to a trail and then we can go on like a 35 minute walk and then I have to drive him back or I can hurry up and rush stuff and take them when I'm done with work and hope that the sun doesn't set because I have been caught in the dark a couple of times with Zelda where I misjudged when the sun was going to go down and that's not fun. I did, don't like that. Don't care for that. So I think I would, I would just be outdoors a lot more. I do like my job and I like what I do, but I'm also, the older I get, the more I'm just like, God, my body is already falling apart and I have to do this for like 30 more years before I can just like exist and be. Yeah. And just like truly enjoy the things I I like to do rather than what I have to do to survive. Let's just win the lottery and buy a farm in Colorado. We can all move there. I'll sell my body and my stuff on the internet if I have to. That means I can just... (laughs) Me too. You know, the stripper life sounds great too. I mean... I mean, let me tell you, I already sell my body to medical school, so... There you go. You just need to tack on some extra extra money. You're like, I'll give you an extra show after this. Exactly. See, Come but, see me on my street corner. See, but wouldn't it be nice to like do the stripper thing, but do like the old timey version where like you're just in a room by yourself and some creep like pays $20 to like peek in through a peephole and you're just like, oh, I'm just on my swing, touching my boobies. And then they like can't get to you, can't touch That's you. That's the same thing. It's kind of the same thing. Get to watch them jack off. 
sit there through the window. Yeah, you don't have to see them at all. Exactly. That's why you they do it do online. Want. Just be like, I guess okay. that's true. That'll be 50 bucks. What are we drinking? I forgot that that's part of the intro. Katie, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'm just drinking regular water and I had some hot tea, but it's all gone now. It was dandelion root and Ooh. the throat coat with some honey in my okay. in my Christmas mug that I refuse to put with, away with Christmas decorations. She stays with me. It must stay all year round. I am drinking, hold on, I'm going to refill it. I am drinking a, a hot tea called Earl Grey de la Creme by Tiesta Teas. Ooh. And it was a little almond milk. And then this looks super gross. I'm almost done with it. It's um, water with like a super food drink mix in it. I think it's called Rewind. You're going to be awake forever. <laughs> oh, no. I'm. Oh, I forget. I'm talking to the the person who can drink like 25 cups of coffee and still yep. go to bed. Jace, what are you drinking? Jace, what are you... Yeah. Well, I, I guess I'm the, lone, I'm the lone drinker tonight. I don't have any tea on me, but I do have... Um, I was drinking a Coke Zero earlier, the new formula. Oh. <laughs> and now I'm drinking um, some Trader Joe's Sangria in my Tears of My Enemies glass. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Um, yeah are your enemies vampires i think so get it because it's like it looks like blood it what is blood this isn't the sangria (laughs) this is just blood (laughs) i love it i guess we should probably get started let's talk about sex and cults and murder talk about some sex and cults and murder sex with young children to make more children and then we're gonna burn the whole thing down murder so today we're gonna be talking about the branch davidians and it's a doozy it starts with the apocalypse and ends with the apocalypse (laughs) just on two different spectrums so if you are not aware of what the branch davidians are you probably know two things about it the leader aka david koresh and where it took place waco an offshoot of seventh day adventist davidians also known as shepherd's rod why no yes because he called himself a shepherd didn't he um well this one there's no way he didn't know well okay so so what i'm talking about is that was the davidians was actually founded in 1929 by victor t hotif i don't know if i'm saying that right but his name is hotif and the fancy new name branch davidians didn't happen until 1955 once victor t hotif passed away and ben roden became the new leader of the davidians and then he was like, it's now the Branch Davidians. Hmm. So basically, Davidians were created to prepare for the second advent or coming of Christ. Sweet baby Jesus Christ was coming. He's coming back. Um, and just in case you needed to know what Adventists believe in or what they do, here's a quick breakdown. They wholeheartedly believe Jesus will return. And just to be a little different, instead of going to church on Sundays, they praise the Lord on Saturday. That's because they say that Saturday is the true seventh day. Yeah. It's fine. I mean, technically it is because you always, days of the week, days of the week, 
There's the week. There's the week. There's the week. I've never learned this. There's Sunday there's Monday. There's Tuesday and there's Wednesday. There's Thursday and there's Friday. There's Thursday and there's Friday. Did I say that wrong? Monday and there's Tuesday. Wait. There's one Sunday and there's Monday. There's Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. There's Thursday and there's Friday. And then there's Saturday. Yeah, Saturday's the seventh. So, you're right. My bad. Keep praising Jesus on Saturday. Praise him. Praise uh, the Lord. Thanks. I'm done. Praise the Lord. Uh, so I've already done enough for my lifetime. Oh, don't worry. Once you get older, once you hit about 60, you start to accept the Lord back into your heart. And that's yeah, when I yeah. and that's Tom's when running, I will eventually Tom's be saved. Short. And I'm gonna be yes. the next Tammy Faye. I'm gonna be on camera with my big okay. hair, my makeup, and I'm gonna be praising yeah, the are. Lord on Saturday morning television with my husband. I might stick around for that. Otherwise, I'm just going to fill my pockets with rocks and walk into a lake. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Um, <laughs> Seventh-day Adventists also follow a pretty strict plant-based diet. If they do happen to consume any animal product, it has to be clean. Clean it or... I'm just kidding. I know what that means. It's from the early books of the Bible. So in, I believe, Leviticus, there's a huge list of what clean and unclean animals are. For instance, pigs are unclean animals. Um, I believe go no goats are clean animals. There's a list like it can't have or it has to have a cloven hoof. It can't be like a bottom feeder. So like shrimp are unclean animals but other types of fish are clean. Trust me, the Bible goes so in-depth into all of this over what is considered clean and unclean. I am totally unclean. Yes. Adventists are also strict pacifists, which means they oppose violence and killing. Very fitting. You. Very fitting. Hotep thought himself and his supporters would help bring about the future Davidic kingdom when the apocalypse happened. Hotif is the one who founded the compound in Waco, Texas, where it went from Davidians to Branch Davidians, and then the whole shit, you know, blew up in years down the road. Apparently, Waco, Texas, Mount Carmel was going to be where the Divine Kingdom was after the apocalypse. I just, of course, I love where all of these crazy fanatic Christian. Apocalypse ending of time, people always come up with like, it's going to happen here. And like the most like not super well-known tiny ass small town in the middle of nowhere, USA. I'm just always like, what? I just hope that there's a tunnel there for whatever cave Charles Manson and his followers were going to hide in when the uh, race riots happened. And that way they could just survive the apocalypse together. Oh, they all should have done in an alternate timeline. I mean, it's happening in real time as we speak. In an alternate reality. It mm-hmm. is. Charles Manson and David Koresh are riding dune buggies together. I asked to uh. leave this simulation yesterday, but I'm still here. Okay. So Hotef never actually got to see the apocalypse. His wife, Florence, um, actually predicted that the apocalypse would happen in 1959. But Hotef passed away in 1955. So he was four years away from seeing the apocalypse. And in 19, Bummer, man. I know, right? In 1955, after he passed away, that is when Ben Roden took over the leadership of Mount Carmel. After he was claiming that God was speaking to him and telling him he should continue doing Hotep's work. And then, like I said, that's where Ben Roden was like, we're not just going to be the 
Davidians, we're going to be the Branch Davidians because that sounds better. Just kidding. It has some religious meaning to it. Yeah. And I just want to note that, no, the world did not end in 1959, but the Antichrist was born that year, introducing Mr. Vernon Wayne Howell, also known as David Koresh. Oh, that was I put that in my notes. That sounds perfect. Okay, so yes, David Koresh. What does David Koresh have to do with all of this? Well, this is his story. This is a story about <laughs> freeze frame. <laughs> I bet you're wondering how I got here. I bet you're wondering how I got here. So David Koresh is typically the person that you think about when you think of Waco, Texas, and then you probably think of the fire and the shootouts and the many, many many days of phone calls between the FBI and David Koresh. Um, and the Janet Reno And the children. And <laughs> there's a lot that goes into when you, David Koresh and Waco. Mm-hmm. But this episode is, you know, also about the Branch Davidians, which you need to know that name to know David Koresh and Waco as well, but a lot of people don't. So, mm-hmm. so who exactly was David Koresh and how was he involved in one of the most notorious raids in the United States history? Well, David Koresh was born Vernon Wayne Howell. That's a nice name. Um, <laughs> real nice name. You real got nice there. name. You got there, Mr. Mr. Vernon. <laughs> Vernon Wayne Howell was born to a single teenage mom named Bonnie Clark. She was 15 years old when she gave birth to David. Kar- I mean, Vernon, Vernon, you're Vernon right now. Um, and he was born on August 17th, 1959 in Houston, Texas. Koresh was exposed to Seventh-day Adventist church at an early age due to spending a lot of time with his grandparents who were really big churchgoers. He had memorized most of the Bible by age 12, but he like wasn't that great at school. Yes, he was like obsessed with it. Um, didn't do well in school, but was able to memorize the Bible. <laughs> Koresh never knew his father, um, and like he was actually mostly raised by his grandparents, which is why he was constantly, I think, in the face of the church, because also think of the time that it was, it was you know, we're just getting out of the leave it to beaver, you know, nuclear family thing. So still even to this day, we have, you know, crazy fanatical people. And religion's not crazy, but when you get a little too crazy with your religion, then it becomes crazy, Okay. That's yeah, true. no offense, people. Where am I? From a young age, Koresh was teased by the other kids. He was dyslexic, and he was, like I said, not the best student in class. And his classmates also would call him Vernie. This was found out when Koresh was on one of his many late-night phone calls with the FBI in 1993. Which, was he, like, sitting on the bed with his hands and his... Like this and kicking his feet like 100% twirling the phone cord yes Koresh was having little late night phone calls with the FBI where he was telling all about all of his childhood trauma and how he was teased I'm not discrediting any of that I'm just trying to carry on with the story Koresh dropped out of high school during his senior year and even though he wasn't academically great he had a natural talent for music which that brings him to leaving Texas and traveling to Los Angeles with hopes of becoming a rock star. When that rock star lifestyle didn't pan out the way he thought that it would, Koresh went back to Texas. 
Once he was back in Texas, he became very even more immersed in the Seventh-day Adventist church, but he did try to be a Southern Baptist for a minute. But then he realized they were a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, so he went to the They're Seventh-day the Adventist. They're a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> if I flirt with you, woman, you better let me put my hands on your titties. I don't care if I'm married. That's a Southern Baptist. And that's what the Lord wrote. <laughs> Is it in, in the, the Bible? Bible, Renee? Is that in the it's in, it's in them red letters. That's how you yeah. know Jesus done spoke it. Oh, yeah. That's how you know, because they I, were smart enough to take their red ballpoint. And when they wrote it down, they wrote his words in red. So he was attending the church, the same Seventh-day Adventist church that his mother attended. And he was really digging it and enjoyed it. Um, but he was actually considered a bad influence on the other young people. Also, he was trying to pursue a pastor's daughter. So he was actually kicked out of that church. Oh. He's already off to a great start. Great start. Yeah, you gotta leave the PKs alone. So yeah. after he was kicked out of that church, he traveled to Waco, Texas, and that's where he joined the Branch hey. Davidians. And this is when it's hey. all coming together, people. Hey. Soon after joining, uh, Koresh started a whirlwind love affair with the Branch Davidians wife. If y'all remember, Ben Roden, he was the leader of the Branch Davidians. And David Crush walked into that compound and was like, you 60-year-old woman, I want you. And so her name was Lois, Lois Roden. She was having a love affair with David Koresh. How old was he at this point? Like I mean, early 20s? This was in the 80s, so yeah. And she was in her late 70s. Oh, okay. But soon after they started their little love affair, uh, she passed away. Um, and so then Ben Roden and Lois Roden's son, George Roden was wanting to be the higher power of the Branch Davidians at this time. But Koresh was also wanting to fulfill that role. They ended up clashing and Koresh ended up moving out of Mount Carmel to Eastern Texas, but Koresh was not letting it slide. He returned to Mount Carmel with seven (laughs) other men and they were dressed in camouflage and armed with an arsenal of weapons. Oh. Are you ready to hear Holy shit. what they came with? Yes. Oh, my God. Please yeah. tell me. They had five .223 caliber semi-automatic assault rifles. Autoratic? Autoratic. It's the erotic version. <laughs> Autoerotic? Yeah. Autoerotic? Autosphyxiation? They had two .22 caliber rifles, two 12-gun... I cannot... Say, okay, two 12-gauge shotguns and almost 400 rounds of ammunition. That's fucking crazy. Yes, and all they wanted to do, they were like, we just want to talk. George Roden was actually shot in the chest and the hands during the shootout. He did survive the attack, and Koresh and the men involved were accused of attempted murder. But seeing as how this took place in Texas, they were all acquitted. They literally went. And wanted to kill this man. Shot him. And he was let free. Yeah, the judge was like, why is this man here? This is how we solve our disputes in Texas. And then he realized years later, oh, I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, you did, sir. Yes, you did. Yes. Let's fast forward to the early 90s. Koresh does become the leader of the Branch Davidians. And this was also around the time that he legally changed his name from Vernon Howe to David Koresh. His reasoning for changing his name was 
for publicity and business purposes. Not only that, Koresh was also a Hebrew transliteration of Cyrus, which is the name of the Persian king who allowed the Jews held captive in Babylon to return to Israel. So, this is his prophetic leader mindset coming in full swing. This is also probably around the time that David Koresh uh, started to become a little too prophetic in his religion. He started to develop a little Jim Jones complex, which is kind of uh, coincidental that that happened not like a couple years before David Koresh even went to Waco, Texas. Oh, yeah. I wonder how he felt about Jones. Because it was a huge news story. There's no way he could have escaped it. Of course. Maybe he was like that. That seems... Yeah, let's do that. Just without drinking the Kool-Aid. Let's just stock up on assault rifles. I mean, but wait, didn't Jim Jones have a bunch of weapons too? Yes. Yeah, he just wanted to leave out the Kool-Aid. With Koresh becoming the leader of the Branch Davidians at this time, he enacted a few new teachings. One of those new teachings became the practice of spiritual weddings, which this basically enabled Koresh to marry any female within the Branch Davidians, regardless of their age. But... Koresh's love affairs with young girls started in 1984 when he married a teenage girl named Rachel Jones. Um, And he would also go on to have at least three children with Rachel Jones over the years. And it's not going to be the first time that Koresh has had any sexual encounters with underage females, and it's definitely not the last, unfortunately. Um, Throughout his time as the leader, it is rumored that Koresh fathered at least a dozen children with females of the Branch Davidians. One of the women he had children with was his sister-in-law, and he started when she was, like, 13 years old. Disgusting. Yeah, I, I, I kind of talk about that. I thought maybe now was a good time to go over some bullet points. Um, so let's go over this again, kids. Um, how do you know if you're in a cult? Okay, we're going to break down a few points. Um, if there is a prophetic leader, you're in a cult. If the said leader speaks of the apocalypse or end times coming soon, you're in a cult. If that same leader is able to marry, fuck, do whatever he pleases with young girls and women, you're in a cult. And if said leader has an arsenal of weapons for whatever reasons, probably because of delusion slash fear that they're being sought after, which majority of them are, you're in a cult. So now that we've gone over the signs you may or may not be in a cult, let's determine if Branch Davidians was in fact a cult. Are we ready? Here we go. Indeed. Number one, prophetic leader, David Koresh. Check. Number two, impending doom of the apocalypse. Check. Number three, Koresh having sexual relations and marrying underage females and young women. Check. Number four, Koresh having weapons galore for whatever reason. Check. Well, kids, I think it's safe to say this is a cult. So if anybody was wondering, yes, it was a cult. For lots of reasons. 100%. Those are just a few. Now, yes, just wanted to briefly kind of talk about, so I got my um, information from David Koresh biography. I got it from a Vox article called The Waco Tragedy, and I got some of my information from a New York Times article. So before I pass the torch along to Jace, I think. Jace. Yes. Um, it's me. I'm just going to do a little... I'm the shrine of the silver you monkey. You are. You're the middle man. I did want to touch base on how awful the kids had it. And this is a lot of things that these prophetic leaders of cults do where they like make it seem like it's this utopian place to be. And it's nine times out of ten not. It's a shithole. 
No. And so some of this might be a little rough because it does talk about sexual situ- situations involving minors. So it's a little warning. Paresh had about 12 to 13 kids while he was the leader of the Branch Davidians. And these children were not born with full-grown adult mothers. Um, I'm just going to say that. The kids were not treated kindly. Um, from a young age, they were trained to fend off the people who were coming for them, like they were trained how to use the guns and basically like militia, like just raising kids. And here you go, you can walk, here's a gun. It's basically how they were raised. And David being the perverted man that he was, would give girls as young as 11 a plastic star of David. And this star would be the deciding factor in whether females were old enough to engage in sexual acts with David Koresh. I hate it. Yeah. Yeah, that's despicable. He was also marrying girls as young as 11 years old. Um, Not only were the children raped by David Koresh, uh, they had a pretty rough time just living at Mount Carmel. Um, I did not see any, but I'm not going to, I would not put it past it for him to also have sexual uh, encounters with males. Like, I didn't see anything, but... I don't think he would have, only because... This is this does not in any way excuse any of his actions, mm-hmm. because it is incredibly fucked up. But he believed that he was supposed... Because any children that were born of his seed were, like you said, they carried on that messianic legacy. Mm-hmm. And so in his mind, sex was to make more kids. So, like, the sooner you got a girl started having kids, the more kids he would have. So there's, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty gross. So I don't, I have not seen anything either about that. But hey, who fucking knows? He was in California in the 70s. So Aside from that, he was doing it to underage females, which is just wrong on so many levels and, like, you had women there that were your age. Like you started out having an affair with a woman in her late sixties. You just had to go on the total opposite end of it. And like, he's just a disgusting man. Oh, God. Yeah. That's well, disgusting. Um, but like, it's so, but like, I don't, it's so easy to blame a non-corporeal being that can't be here to be like, I didn't tell him to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh no, God told me to do these things. And that's, I was, it was divine ascension. He would be like, I had a dream last night that your 13-year-old sister was supposed to be my wife, so she's my wife now. Very disturbed um, person. And he yeah. didn't he didn't give them anything worth, really. Nothing that was on the compound was, was that great. Honestly, they had no running water. When they had to go to the bathroom, they did their business in a pot that they had to clean out every night. If they made one small mistake, such as like spilling milk, um, they would be paddled with the helper, which was a wooden spoon. And at times, they were deprived of food for a whole day. He did allow girls to sleep in for as long as they wanted. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm curious. I'm wondering if he allowed them to sleep in because he was a disgusting-ass man. Um, Because the boys, he would force them to get up at like 5.30 a.m. in the morning to go to the gym, which was like their work that they had to do on the compound, essentially. 
the kids had a hard time thinking negatively about Koresh. So this, this article that I found, it was in the New York Times. The psychiatrists were evaluating the children and interviewing them after the raid. So they were talking to them about, you know, how they were raised and what would happen. And they talked openly about the sexual abuse that Koresh had done to them. Um, but these kids also had a hard time speaking negatively about David Koresh. And they were openly saying that they loved him and they would draw pictures of him and they would write, I love you, David, on like the pictures that they drew in front of the FBI agents while they were being like interviewed about everything that happened while they lived on Mount Carmel or in Mount Carmel. And multiple kids did admit to being sexually abused by David Koresh. Um, But also, unfortunately, the sexual abuse allegations were not like the top priority of what the FBI really wanted to focus on. So it kind of got pushed under the rug because they were more focused on the um, heavy amount of illegal firearms and like weapons that David Koresh had in the compound. And that's what they were focused on instead of these kids who were sexually abused and like held prisoner basically inside of this that one sounds place. pretty in line with America. It it's fucking crazy. Mind blowing. That's yeah, that's fucked up. That's all we care about. Um, but yeah, like I said, I could have yeah. gotten way more, but um, we would have been here for a minute. So I kind of got the basics. <laughs> um, I don't know if Renee, you have anything else to add into that? Not yet. Okay. So are you passing the torch over I am. to me, I'm sorry. Kate? Why are you apologizing? I don't know. Stop it. No more apologies. 2022. So my job was to research the um, the plant who went into the Branch Davidians uh, commune to kind of like be whistleblower, I guess. For there's probably a better term, but like to be kind of like the eyes for the government, kind of see what was going on, figure out what was happening, kind of get be the earworm to help them figure out like talking points or like how to diffuse it as easily as possible. And in my research, in my extensive research, there's not a lot about Robert Rodriguez. Like there is a little bit, but like there's no, there wasn't really any like background that I could find, which now thinking about it, after everything that went down, they probably were like, yeah, let's cover up as much as we can about this dude. Like even in the HBO series, they like named him a different name. Like I don't remember specifically. Yeah. Like everyone else kind of, I think everyone of significance kept their name except for the plant. But I have two sources that I'm pulling from. One is the history.com Waco 20 years later, where they now article. And then the other one is the Chicago Tribune covering the actual trial where um, Robert Rodriguez was like, you're covering stuff up. Like, this isn't actually what happened. But basically, um, after being leaked to the media, word of the February 28th raid reached the Branch Davidians when a local cameraman unwittingly asked Karisha's brother-in-law for directions. Robert Rodriguez, an undercover agent with the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, abbreviated to ATF, infiltrated the compound, posing as a trade school student, excused himself in order to warn his superiors that the element of surprise had been lost. But they decided to proceed anyway, leading to the shootout in which 10 people died. 
Rodriguez later filed a lawsuit against the ATF and a slew of its officials, alleging that they defamed him and conspired to make him a scapegoat. An out-of-court settlement reportedly netted him nearly $2.3 million. Having been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, Rodriguez retired with disability benefits in December 1999. And as of 2010, he lived in San Antonio, Texas. So that's the abbreviated 20 years later, what's happening with him. Um, The Chicago Tribune goes into a little bit more detail. And I kind of spliced this article a little bit to kind of get more of like the Rodriguez narrative. It goes into a lot of detail and it's basically a lot of like the government being like, uh, I don't know that. No, (laughs) like stupid law jargon. We're like, I don't know that that happened. Mm-hmm. And it's like wow. so you so you didn't know that that happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know that that's really what went down. I saw no reason for the raid to not go forward. Chachnaki testified, who was also a member of, of course, the aforementioned raid. He was a member of the ATF, who was leading part of it with Rodriguez, but on the other side, obviously not being a plant, he was just kind of like calling the shots for the shootout. He and Sarabin, who eventually were rehired at lower positions, said Koresh often had predicted the law enforcement agents would come for him one day, and they thought Rodriguez had only heard another version of the claim. So again, gaslighting immediately. Oh, jeez. How do we... So we're in the wrong. How do we not say we're wrong and make this easier for everyone immediately? Just like, that's... It sounds like you heard a different telling of these events yeah i didn't feel he crush knew that we were coming sarah ben said monday but rodriguez sitting at the same table fumed they can still sit there and lie those two men know what i told them and knew exactly what i meant he said rodriguez was vindicated by the treasury report but never before had told his story in public two years i've waited for this because i think it was like two years later that this trial went down like he had asked for the trial and it took fucking forever Mm-hmm. Two years I've waited for this, dot, dot, dot. It let me get everything out, he said after his testimony. The events, he said, were tearing me up inside. Louis Merletti, who helped direct the Treasury review team, backed up Rodriguez, testifying that Sarabin at one point admitted that he was 100% sure Koresh knew of the raid. Rodriguez recounted visiting the Branch Davidians' isolated religious compound, portraying himself as a student. The ATF was investigating illegal firearms allegedly possessed by Koresh and his followers. I hated what he preached. I hated being around him. I hated pretending, Rodriguez said. He said Koresh taught his followers that they would one day engage in a holy battle, that, quote, their destiny was to die and later come back as the chosen few. On February 28, 1993, Koresh was talking to Rodriguez about the Bible when Koresh got a phone call and left the room. Quote, when he came back, it was like day and night, dot, dot, dot. He was shaking real bad. He was breathing real hard, the agent said. Koresh turned to him, Rodriguez testified, and said, quote, Robert, neither the ATF or the National Guard will ever get me. Dot, 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 they're coming. Robert, the time has come. Rodriguez said he realized Koresh had been tipped off and was prepared to confront the agents who were accompanied by National Guard troops. He hurried to a nearby house used by undercover agents and was advised to call Sarah Ben right away. 
Once on the phone, he told his boss, they know Chuck. They know, they know we're coming. Sarabin asked him if he'd seen the Branch Davidians with weapons, and Rodriguez said no. After they spoke, Rodriguez rushed to the command center to talk to Sarabin in person. I had to go and talk to Chuck. I knew I still had time. I wanted to stop the raid, he testified. But when he got there, Sarabin had left for the raid. I started yelling, Rodriguez said. I said, why, why? They know we're coming. Worry swept through the command post as Rodriguez went outside and cried. His fears became reality when the Branch Davidians greeted the raiding agents with intense gunfire. It came from inside as we approached the front door, ATF agent John Williams testified. They were shooting through the windows, the doors, everywhere. And like, I remember when I watched the HBO series, I remember like the renamed plant, and I guess that must have been done for dramatic purposes, that he like mm-hmm. actually, I think it was, again, it was meant to be that dramatic thing where like he actually did really like crush that thematically in the writing of like making building a fictitious narrative around real events that tells a better story than him of course like vehemently hating him the entire time well it's easy to follow the government's narrative which is that david koresh was such an incredibly charismatic leader that his people wouldn't leave him if you can spin this narrative that he was so charismatic that the atf officer or FBI, I can't remember. Was he FBI or was he ATF? Rodriguez was ATF. ATF. The, the ATF officer who was assigned to go and infiltrate was also so incredibly taken with him because he was such an amazing charismatic leader. It just makes it easier to follow the accepted narrative. Yeah, 100% you're right. I don't know. I feel like that's what's so complicated is like, I think we've been so romanticized as like any culture, honestly. War is told from retrospect. So in the same idea, like a raid is told from retrospect. So of course, it's not a matter of like, someone is here and watching the whole thing. It's just like what happened or what didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So there's so much lost once we bring in like that level of violence. It's like what whoever's left over is the one who tells the story. Exactly. And who are you going to believe? Like respected FBI agents, like government officials or people who are part of a crazy cult who somehow managed to survive. Or the children who were raped, who were the product yeah. of rape. Who will you believe? And that's my contribution. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I looked so hard. I was like, where, why am I not finding more information no, was, on this that man? That was lovely. I just wanted to go more into like his background, like his training, what brought him to this moment. And like, None of that is readily available. There was one article that I clicked on that, that like wouldn't load, and I I found that kind of sus. Mm. We're being but, silenced. They don't want yeah, you to I'm find like, it. Yeah, we're being silenced. I gotta go. I gotta go on the dark web. All right. Well, unfortunately, listeners, that means that you're about to hear me talk a whole lot, and I oh my gosh, I apologize in advance, but we have a lot to cover. So. Please feel free to jump in to my into my monologue at any time, y'all, if y'all have questions and stuff, because I am going to try and get through this as quickly as possible. So if you have any questions, please feel free to jump in. Um, my sources are FBI reverses its stance on Waco by Richard Leiby of The Washington Post. Uh, the Waco Tragedy Explained by Tara Isabella Burton on Vox. How Failures During the Waco Siege Changed Everything for the FBI and ATF by Mark Wilson. 
And of course, evaluation of the handling of the Branch Davidian standoff in Waco, Texas, February 28th to April 19th, 1993, by Edward S.G. Dennis Jr. of the U.S. Department of Justice. Also, unfortunately, you really can't talk about the FBI's response to Waco without first discussing what happened at Ruby Ridge. And if you are not familiar with what happened at Ruby Ridge, it was the site of an 11-day siege that began on August 12, 1992 in Boundary County, Idaho, when deputies of the United States Marshal Service initiated action to apprehend and arrest a man named Randy Weaver under a bench warrant after his failure to appeal to appear on firearms charges. So because Weaver suspected a government conspiracy against him, mostly because he had been spending a lot of his time since moving to Boundary County, Idaho, as part of a far-right-wing, anti-government, pro-gun, white supremacist militia, Weaver, along with his family and a family friend named Kevin Harris, refused to surrender to the U.S. Marshals. While investigating the Weaver property, six of the U.S. Marshals encountered Kevin Harris and Weaver's 14-year-old son, Sammy, in the woods near the family cabin, and a shootout between the two groups took place. Deputy U.S. Marshal William Francis Deegan, Sammy Weaver, the 14-year-old boy, and the Weaver's dog, Stryker, all died as a result of the shootout. In the subsequent siege of the Weaver residence, led by the FBI, Weaver's wife, Vicky, was killed by FBI sniper fire, her dead body lying on their kitchen floor for the remaining days of the siege. Uh, The siege and standoff were ultimately resolved by civilian negotiators. Harris surrendered. uh, Kevin Harris, who was the family friend, surrendered and was arrested on August 30th, while Weaver and his three daughters surrendered the next day. Weaver and Harris were subsequently arraigned on a variety of federal criminal charges, including first-degree murder for the death of Deegan. Harris was acquitted of all charges, and Weaver was acquitted of all charges, except for the original bail condition violation for the firearms charges and for having missed his original court date. He was fined $10,000 and sentenced to 18 months in prison, credited with time served, plus an additional three months, and released after 16 months. During the federal criminal trial of Weaver and Harris, Weaver's attorney, Jerry Spence, made accusations of criminal wrongdoing against the agencies involved in the incident. In particular, the FBI, the U.S. Marshals, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the lovely ATF, and the United States Attorney's Office for Idaho. At the trial's end, the DOJ Office of Professional Responsibility formed the Ruby Ridge Task Force to investigate Spence's charges. Both the Weaver family and Harris brought civil suits against the federal government over the firefight and siege. The Weavers won a combined out-of-court settlement in August 1995 of $3.1 million. And after numerous appeals, Harris was awarded a $380,000 settlement in September of 2000. There is so much that happened in Ruby Ridge that we could go over. There's like such, there's an amazing documentary about it. I can't remember the name of it, but there's an amazing documentary about it. I highly recommend looking into Ruby Ridge. It's so. It's insane. It's, it's such a terrible event, but this is literally just me like, doing a quick wikipedia version of what happened but it is so important because the ruby ridge incident and the 1993 waco siege involved many of the same federal agencies and even some of the same personnel 
with the tragedy of Ruby Ridge in the back of their minds, they desperately wanted this situation to end better. So what happened? (laughs) Here are the basics, according to the people who were there and who survived. Uh, Like Jace was talking about, on February 28th, 1993, the ATF attempted to raid the Branch Davidian site in order to execute a search warrant. According to Agent Blake Baudelaire, which I might be pronouncing wrong, when we went to it, this was going to be a warrant service that would last maybe a day or so for us to complete the search. Then we'd go back to our world. We didn't have that mindset that this was going to be one of the biggest law enforcement gunfights in history. (laughs) Dubbed Operation Trojan Horse, the raid was supposed to allow ATF agents to get in close to the compound under the cover of horse trailers before Branch Davidians realized what was happening. However, shortly before the operation began, Koresh was tipped off. And then as Baudelaire boarded the lead trailer, he remembered hearing an agent say, if they know we're coming, why are we going? That Hold on. That is kind of similar to the whole thing that happened in Jonestown. Not like with mm-hmm. with them finding out kind of what's going on before it all goes down at the airport. Yeah, them figuring out that something terrible mm-hmm. or, well, Jim Jones figuring out that something terrible was going to happen. What happened next is a little murky because people who were in the Branch Davidians who survived say that the ATF fired first. The ATF agents who survived say that the Branch Davidians fired first. I don't think we will ever truly know exactly what happened, but at the very end of it, five ATF agents and five Branch Davidians were dead, and there were an additional 16 ATF agents who were injured. After this happened was an unprecedented 51-day standoff between the Branch Davidians and the FBI, who took over from the ATF once they realized what the situation was. The FBI used a variety of tactics to breach the compound, including the playing of agonizingly loud music on speakers 24-7 and participated in a full 60 hours of negotiation with David Koresh in an attempt to get access to the site. To get an idea of how big this operation was, at the time, Malcolm Gladwell, writing for The New Yorker, said... The FBI assembled what has been called probably the largest military force ever gathered against a civilian suspect in American history. Ten Bradley tanks, two Abrams tanks, four combat engineering vehicles, 668 agents in addition to six U.S. Customs officers, 15 U.S. Army personnel, 13 members of the Texas National Guard, 31 Texas Rangers, 131 officers from the Texas Department of Public Safety, 17 from the McLennan County Sheriff's Office, and 18 Waco police for a total of 899 people. Okay, I have a question. Yes. Is it just because the amount of people that were in the Branch Davidians and they were too worried to to go and try and infiltrate it because of the weapons because of the fact that atf agents were shot because i'm just thinking like all well, the, there weren't that many people that's what i'm saying so like what's with like 150 800 people? something law enforcement slash military people coming in and I'm, I'm how much did he have like to for the it to be that serious that much. and yeah all all of these motherfuckers that are shooting up all these places right now 
are walking out free, just <laughs> doing their thing. Take them to the Burger King. I honestly believe that it was because they were so afraid of another Ruby Ridge happening that they were like, let's bring in as much personnel as possible to get this done as quickly as possible, of which the opposite happened. Exactly. So, good job. Exactly. Byron Sage, who was the lead FBI negotiator during the siege, insists he begged Koresh to leave the compound and take his grievances to court. See, he failed at that. Over the course of the next several weeks, now I do, I do want to mention that throughout the siege, Koresh does, he doesn't hold all of his people hostage. He's not holding his entire group hostage. He does periodically release people to safety. And over the next several weeks, Koresh allowed some people, primarily children, to leave the compound to get to safety. All in all, 35 people, including 21 children, were released during the standoff. So here's where we get into the nitty gritty based off of the DOJ report. And this goes into a ton of detail about everything that happened throughout the negotiation process. Also, I will say, unfortunately, this does, you know, come from the mindset of the FBI. So I would say as I'm speaking about this, look through it through that lens. I tried to remove a lot of the very, like, pro-FBI language, but obviously some of it is still there because it was written by, you know, the government. The very first briefing that was presented to the Attorney General, Madam Janet Reno, states that the strategy was to secure the surrender and arrest of all adult occupants of the compound while providing the maximum possible security for the children within the compound. Negotiators insisted they were faced with a religious group fanatically devoted to Koresh and his teachings. They weren't certain, however, if Koresh truly believed his own religious message or whether he was exploiting his control over his followers for personal gain. According to the FBI, they initially tried to work within the framework of the Davidians' beliefs to convince Koresh the standoff was not the apocalyptic event he had prophesied. However, because Koresh considered himself the only expert in his particular sect of Branch Davidianism, even religious scholars were unable to influence his unique interpretation of scripture. Special sort of megalomaniac. According to Sage, one of the reasons Koresh refused to leave the compound was because he knew he and other Davidians would be arrested and charged with the murder of the ATF agents in the initial shootout. Well, duh. Texas has... Like, what? (laughs) I don't know why those four ATF agents would be... I don't know why their lives are worth more. Or the five ATF agents. I don't know why their life is worth more than the five branch of idiots who died but whatever texas does have the death penalty by lethal injection duh because texas <laughs> at one point in the negotiations with sage koresh joked when they give me the lethal injection give me the cheap stuff huh <laughs> efforts were aimed at convincing koresh that if he and the others exited the compound they would be treated well However, this tactic was eventually abandoned because it wasn't popular since it could be viewed as disparaging of the dead ATF agents. So not only was it not working, but the other members of the ATF were like, maybe we don't tell him that we're going to be nice that, you know, people are dead because of him. The final negotiating strategy they tried was called the trickle flow gush strategy. What? What? Where is this coming out of? Yeah. It'll make sense as I explain it, but I do have in my trickle notes gush and what to let Katie enjoy that trickle flow gush. I have it in my notes. 
The objective was to undermine the devotion of individual members to David Koresh. So they began speaking to other members of the Branch Davidians on the phone instead of just talking to David. They would play tapes of their negotiations with David and statements of people who had left the Branch Davidians and their family members back into the compound over loudspeakers. So they had these massive speakers that they initially were using to communicate, and then they started playing these tapes from people who had left, just kind of talking about how they were so much happier now and how David Koresh is crazy and they shouldn't they shouldn't stay with him. They also sent videotapes and pictures of the released children into the compound and sent in messages from family members of the people who were still there. The objective was to accelerate the pace of exodus from the compound from a trickle to a flow to a mass desertion of Koresh by his followers. Although it was mildly successful, the strategy was ultimately deemed a failure. The number of people leaving the compound slowed rather than accelerated, and the exit of members from the compound stopped completely after March 23rd. Even worse, most of the people who left the compound were allowed to exit by David Koresh. He encouraged them to leave for their own safety, and after they left, they were still loyal to him. Koresh promised he would leave on March 2nd if the government played a tape he made with a recording of his beliefs. Despite their, you know, grievances about doing that, they did it anyway because they wanted this to end. But Koresh still refused to leave. As he said, he was waiting for a sign from God. Koresh told his lawyers he would come out after Passover because Jesus. Because he's Jesus. He's Jesus. When Passover ended. He's the Antichrist. (laughs) He instead stated he had not committed to a specific date to come out. And he continued to make excuses to stay in the compound with his followers, which unintentionally reinforced the FBI's belief that he was not devout, but only a manipulative person. Doesn't that happen all the time? happens all the time to add to this developing situation there were multiple conflicts reported between the negotiators and the tactical elements regarding the strategy that they were using against the davidians on several occasions tactical pressure was exerted either without consulting the negotiators or even after the negotiators told them not to the loudspeakers that they initially used to provide information to Koresh and his followers were inside the compound, but contrary to the negotiator's advice, the loudspeakers were used to broadcast Tibetan chants, uh, loud pop music, and the sounds of dying rabbits. (laughs) Even after the negotiators objected to playing music as a harassment tactic, advising that such psychological warfare would only make the FBI look bad. And at the outset of the crisis, FBI behavioral scientists recommended against confronting David Koresh. The negotiators specifically recommended that the Bradley tanks should not be brought up to the compound. Despite the advice of the negotiators multiple times, the Bradleys were run up and down in front of the compound in what the negotiators believed was a show of force. See, several negotiators and behavioral scientists expressed the opinion that although David Koresh and his core followers may never have come out through negotiation, more people might have exited the compound voluntarily during the standoff if the negotiation strategy had been followed more rigorously. On April 12, 1993, 
uh, Attorney General Madame Janet Reno received her first detailed briefing on the tear gas plan from FBI representatives at headquarters in Washington, D.C. The Associate Attorney General and other department personnel were present. Reno expressed concern about the effects of tear gas on the children and pregnant women in the compound, and it was eventually determined that a second opinion should be obtained from the military on the viability of the plan and more information should be gathered on the effects of tear gas. On April 14th, another meeting was held where military commanders provided their assessment of the plan along with the results of studies of the effects of tear gas, including the effects on children, pregnant women, and the elderly. During the meeting, the fact that American soldiers are exposed to tear gas as part of their routine training was used as an evidence of its safety. What? What? So because American soldiers willingly go through this, they're like, yeah, they'll be fine. I fucking hate this place. And they briefed the attorney general on alternatives to gassing the compound, such as fencing it in. But this option was not recommended because of the firearms in the compound. Compounding the rush on the compound. I didn't even realize I did that wordplay until now. What compounding the rush on the compound. Was that the FBI estimated the Davidians had about a year's supply of food and water. Thus, if they continued to just wait for them to come out... They were looking at possibly one year of negotiation, during which time they couldn't protect against any type of disaster, such as another shootout, an explosion, or people breaking into the compound. Additionally, if the food or water began to run out or the hygienic conditions inside deteriorated, which could possibly happen because they shut their power off, they might walk in after a year and just find a whole lot of dead people, which they also didn't want to do. So after all of these briefings and discussions, on the afternoon of Saturday, April 17th, Janet Reno approved the plan to use tear gas on the compound and informed President Billary Clinton the next day <laughs> that she had approved the plan. I thought you would like that, Katie. The gassing operation was initiated in the early morning hours of April 19th. Special Agent Byron Sage coming in again, initiated telephone contact with the compound, warned them of the imminent tear gas insertion, and reassured them that it was not a lethal assault. Similar messages were broadcast over the loudspeakers throughout the morning, urging the Davidians to come out and assuring them of their safety. At approximately 6 a.m., the HRT, which is the hostage rescue team, was notified that the warning call had been made and the first command engineering vehicle, CEV-1, began inserting the tear gas canisters. Tear gas was inserted through windows in the compound from a boom attached to CEV-1 by means of a Mark V system, which is a liquid tear gas dispenser which shoots a stream of liquid tear gas approximately 50 feet for a duration of approximately 15 seconds. In accordance with this approved plan by the Attorney General, tear gas was inserted into all windows of the compound through the Mark Vs in the two CEVs, as well as by ferret rounds launched from the Bradley tanks. Ferrets are non-burning tear gas rounds designed for 40mm grenade launchers. The CEVs were loaded and made a second complete insertion of tear gas, so they've gone into every window 
and launched these canisters and and went around for a second time. Sometime in the mid-morning, an apparent deviation of the approved plan began. The plan stated that the building would only be dismantled if after 48 hours, all of the people hadn't come out. However, the CEVs began knocking holes into the compound. First, CEV-1 was ordered to enlarge certain openings to provide for an easier escape route for the Davidians. Then, CEV-2 broke down, and the team of that vehicle obtained another, which was not equipped for the tear gas. So instead, they were ordered to clear a path through the compound in order to clear a path to the main tower so that the other vehicle could insert more tear gas. CEV-2's replacement started to knock down a corner of the building and a portion of the roof collapsed. So they're just driving these massive tank vehicles around and knocking shit over at this point. After that is when they observed fire in several locations in the compound. The fire spread very quickly, but even so, in the openings in the buildings made by the tanks themselves. One of the HRT agents left the security of his vehicle to help a woman emerging from the compound. She ran from the agent and threw herself back into the burning building. The agent entered the building and pulled her out, making her one of only nine Branch Davidians who survived exiting the compound on April 19th. What the fuck? She threw herself back into the fire? At first, I thought I had read that wrong because it definitely sounded like she was trying to escape. But then when she saw them, she was like, wait, no, I don't know. No, thanks. I'm going back. Once again, I'd rather have the fire than you guys. You are in a cult if you want to die with your prophetic leader. Reason number five. Mm -hmm. While the FBI anticipated the possibility of fire, fire trucks were kept far from the scene because they believed the heavy weaponry of the Davidians was too dangerous for the firefighters. What? They fight fires. Like, do they know how massive fires can get? What? (laughs) I was very confused by that. But that is the official government reason for why the uh, fire equipment was kept. They can't handle the guns, but they can handle the flames. Like, spray spray them with a hose. They're firing at you. Spray them with a hose. (laughs) That shit's pressurized. It'll knock their arm off. So because of this, the fire equipment was kept on alert several miles away, and as a result, it took a half hour for the fire trucks to get to the compound. 76 Branch Davidians died in the fire, including 20 children and, of course, David Koresh, who was found with a bullet in his head. And we still don't know if he shot himself or if somebody else killed him. But... They did find his body in the fire. Special Agent Byron Sage appearing again. Doesn't believe Koresh would have ever surrendered peacefully, but he admits there were failures. Even though agents had frequent briefings with investigators, intelligence, command, tactical, and logistical elements, Sage said negotiators didn't have a clear line of communication to the tactical agents who were out in front handling the most dangerous aspects of the siege. In his words, They needed to know why we were doing certain things to try and establish rapport and trust because they trained up and quite good at doing surgical tactical assaults on a crisis site to rescue hostages, and they've had significant success. But in a situation like this, once you gain insight into the personalities and the dynamic of the people who are in crisis, then you need to tailor a strategy that leads you to the same conclusion 
that's a safe resolution to the situation. So after all this, one positive aspect to come out of Waco is it forced the ATF and the FBI to readjust the way they were operating these types of situations. Back then, the ATF had 24 different special response teams, all of which trained completely differently. Tactical agents were under-equipped. They lacked equipment like helmets and gun belts. And though a handful of agents were carrying higher-powered AR-15 rifles, most of them never fired a shot. Baudelaire, who you might remember from earlier, said the agency had a crucial decision to make after the Waco siege. We either had to disband and let other agencies run our warrants, or we had to stick to it 100%. And that meant the training, the equipment, and getting everyone up to speed. They had to make that decision to go all in, and they did. After Waco, the ATF invested in tactical equipment and improved weapon systems, along with, most importantly, training on using tear gas and automatic weapons. The agency also standardized training across the board so you didn't have this disjoint nature. The FBI, obviously a vastly larger operation, also made significant changes after Waco. To improve communication and cohesion among the different elements involved in critical incidents, the Bureau created the Critical Incident Response Group. Notably, the agency's tactical and negotiating teams now train together. The group houses five sections, the aviation program, crisis management and command posts, bomb technicians, and the hazardous devices school, all the behavior analysis units, units, <laughs> <laughs> Unix, the behavior analysis Unix, all the behavioral analysis units and the tactical section composed of the hostage rescue team, negotiators, and support. Here's an interesting part, which I'm going to just go over super, super quick. In 1999, the FBI backtracked its original statement about the events of April 19th, acknowledging that FBI agents fired a very limited number of potentially incendiary tear gas cartridges. An FBI spokesman named Paul Bresson stated on record that none of its munitions started the fire and noted that they were used hours before the inferno that consumed the Davidians' compound. FBI officials say they still believe that Branch Davidian leader David Koresh and his followers deliberately torched the compound. However, the use of at least two military 4mm cartridges were confirmed by a former senior FBI official named Danny O. Colson, whose comments were first reported in the Dallas Morning News. And his comments were, in 1999, I only found out a week ago that these rounds were fired. This is the truth, and this is what happened. It's important for the American people to know. Colson said the pyrotechnic gas rounds were not linked to the fire, which broke out shortly after noon. The 40-millimeter munitions were fired no later than 8 a.m., he estimated. News videos from the time show that the tear gas grenades landed near a storm shelter and emitted smoke but did not ignite any part of the main building. Congressional investigators, as well as attorneys rec representing the families of dead Davidians, understandably questioned the FBI's credibility after learning of Colson's remarks. And I would like to end with two things. So the first one is the final statement by Edward S.J. Dennis Jr. on the DOJ report on the handling of the Waco siege. David Koresh engaged in a deliberate campaign to mask his true intentions. Even so, the FBI was extremely accurate in its assessment of Koresh. 
I conclude that the standoff was a mass suicide choreographed by Koresh over a two-month period. Even if the FBI had been more keenly aware of his intentions, it was limited to gassing the compound as the only non-lethal means of resolving the crisis. The probability that the FBI could have broken Koresh's hold over his followers through negotiations was extremely low, based upon what we have learned following the incident. Under the circumstances, the FBI exhibited extraordinary restraint and handled this crisis with great professionalism. The hell? No, they did not. Most of the negative comments about the different agents and departments that I've stated during the time I've been talking were part of a Dennis Jr.'s... It's funny calling him Dennis Jr. Were part of this report. So he said all of these negative things and all of these conflicts and everything that was going on and then ended it with, yeah, no, they did a great job. I mean, they messed up like multiple times, but they did a great job. A plus. Get out of here with that Republican shit. Right? Junior. (laughs) I never trusted Junior. No. And the second, you know, after reading that about how the government believes the FBI did such a good job handling this, the events that took place at Ruby Ridge and the law enforcement response during the Waco siege roughly six months later have been cited by many as catalysts for the Oklahoma City bombing by Timothy McVeigh. Additionally, for right-wing militias and so-called patriot groups, Waco is the evidence they need to prove the existence of a tyrannical, illegitimate government unblinkingly prepared to kill its own people. Oh my god. And that's the Clinton administration. We're gonna have a siege. Let me touch your wife's naughty parts. We're gonna have a siege. Let me play the saxophone on her pussy. We're gonna have a siege. I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm in a show tunes mood tonight. Oh my god. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I subjected you to that. <laughs> Hillary Clinton's going to arrest you for sexual harassment. 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 So speaking of Harissa. like right wing stuff, did y'all hear about mm-hmm. Kemp's, the thing he wants to do about gun control in Georgia? We're like, you don't, God, no, you're not gonna, Mm -hmm. he wants, he wants it to be a constitutional right. So he wants Georgia to basically get rid of like any, anything that's going to prevent you from getting a gun. Oh, permit. Yeah. You don't need a permit. That's Yeah. Like you don't have to carry. He's like, it's just a constitutional right because of how it's, you know, all the amount of violence that's out there right now and people need to be able to protect their families. It just seems like the logical step. (laughs) Well, the reason he's doing it is because he has to find some way to get his base back on his side because he lost us Georgia. Mm-hmm. His fault we didn't get Georgia. He shit his pants and looks like a fucking coward. Well, now he just sounds and fucking crazy. So, like, well, he is crazy. Well, I we know he's crazy. Because the Georgia Republican Party is basically QAnon. And right. um, what's his face? David Perdue oh, yeah. is going against him. It's coming back. Dead. I'm like, no. 
I'm like, this is Dragon Ball Z level of like, I thought we I were at the end dead. of the tunnel. And like, there's a, we didn't get the second evolution of this villain. We got like the A. I'm like, oh my God. And Purdue, Purdue is going hard after David Kemp lost us Brian the Kemp. electoral votes and he lost us the Senate seats. So why would you vote for him again? This is, so if you want to reel behind the scenes as well. So my mom, like, I don't know if she's falling back into like Republican rhetoric or not. I'm not really following it, but a lot of apparently the big Republican like verbiage right now is that Stacey Abrams is so Stacey Abrams sister or cousin. I can't remember which one it is, is a um, judge in Albany, mm-hmm. Georgia. And apparent, apparently a lot of people are saying that Stacey Abrams is bipolar. And I don't know that I can trust someone who is bipolar to be in office. And I'm like, what the fuck? I'm just like, were they asleep for the last four years? That's literally what I said to my mom. I was like, mom, first off, if we're going to even put that on the table, we have to talk about the narcissistic personality disorder of Donald J. Trump. Second, Second, there are so many people in office right now who are, like, functioning with BPD. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's not even an argument for me either. Like, you just, it's someone, it's someone literally big. It's some ignorant fuck who I, who's, like, I'm trying to have an equal, like, footing conversation with through my mom. And I'm, like, they don't know what the fuck they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, no, they don't. They're going to they're going to they're going to Zaxby's and being untouched in their lives. Like they just want to they want to live in their fear rhetoric. It's it so is so stupid. fucking stupid. I well, it's illogical. You don't fight something that's illogical. It's again, it's like the ba- for me, it's the basis of religion in many regards. Mm-hmm. It's like when you when you actively manipulate your party people by manipulating them through something that is intangible, and you take fucking abortion rights which again intangible and you just like create this perfect storm of like no this is god's will the republican party is god's will they fight for the church in a place where it's inherently supposed to be separation of church and state how do you win how do you how do you argue logic you You can't can't. you really can't no this isn't about fiscal conservatism anymore this is literally about fascist like republican Mm -hmm. ideals that we're actively fighting yeah so fucked i agree it's very it's very depressing (laughs) all right baby dolls thank you so much for listening to conspiracy podcast we so appreciate you hitting that play button on your spotify you have to hit the search magnifying glass and you have to seek us out and we appreciate you treating your ear holes to our conspiracies the things we're drinking things we continue to drink throughout that we don't tell you about because we only tell you what we're drinking at the top but we don't tell you what we're drinking <laughs> in the middle or at the it's end it's a tequila shot every time we're sad every time like and oh, some apps mm-hmm. now we're getting weird yeah katie oh. went oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> katie, katie said oh okay <laughs> i mean katie's drinking <laughs> toilet water so that's her secret katie's that scene from it where uh, Beverly gets served like the fucking septic <laughs> water by her by the clown. Mm-hmm. 
that's being her like dad or the old lady who's whatever anyway thank you so much for listening to conspiracy (laughs) podcast um you can follow us at conspiracy podcast atl on the insta um you can follow me i just rebranded so formerly that jace kid you can follow me as father like the parent underscore harlot like the whore You can find Katie at. I'll let Katie drop her handle. Oh man, I have to speak. It's K A T I I I I I I Donut Donut. And then it's the whole song. Um, it's K A T I I I E underscore i think i don't know i'm 70 years old i don't remember that sounds Let me see. no you've lived you've lived literally lifetimes in this <laughs> podcast katie and renee yours um also katie is definitely worth following because she occasionally posts great baking videos so i know why i need to do it again why i um mine is still rudy dot Giuliani, like you know Giuliani, but G H O U L I A N I, because I still haven't changed it from Halloween. It's just true. I'm, I'm gonna change it soon. I just haven't figured something. It's gotta come to me organically. So yeah, Rudy Giuliani for now. You know what? We've had a string of deaths of people who are very beloved, and I feel like by continuing to have this name, I am speaking the ghoulish state of this man into existence it's gonna Mm -hmm. happen soon and in the words of the church that i left a long time ago i'm naming it and i'm claiming it and hallelujah praise jesus anyways and that's our motto for conspiracy oh my god we just became tammy faye We did. The transition has started. Oh my god! Next time, next yes, time Renee's gonna finally. have an updo. She's gonna be orange with some bright colors on her on her eyes. <laughs> you get it, Tammy. I cannot wait. I can't wait. We'll see you next time where we'll cover. We'll probably we'll be heaven heaven's gate by the next time you hear us. We already did heaven's gate with our tan. No, I mean we're gonna be the tan. We're gonna oh, be we're gonna the be heaven's fate. gate. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we're gonna. And our Tammy Faye transition, we're going to be. Yes, I can't wait. Cannot wait. We appreciate you all listening to us so much. And um, we will catch you next time. All right, y'all. Bye. Bye. I just want to do God's will. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people.